Was that awesome? <laughs> Next week he's going to be ready for the genealogy of Jesus. <laughs> if you know anything about Absher's, um, we love Christmas. I come from a long line of Christmas season lovers. Uh, we love Christmas music. We love Christmas trees. We love Christmas lights. We love Christmas stockings. We love Christmas gifts all wrapped up in Christmas paper. Who doesn't love Christmas foods? We love Christmas parties. I come from a family, a long line of people that love all things Christmas. But I would have to say that the main thing that we love about Christmas is the true Christmas story. Christmas, friends, is a celebration of the incarnation. That's one of those uh, big theological words that really just means became flesh, incarnate, became flesh. And the reference is to how God the Son, Jesus, God the Son, became a human being, how He became both God and man in a human being. And there's, you know, there's a lot of things that we could say about the Christmas, the Christmas time of year and the Christmas story and these kinds of things. But I think if you want to boil down the theme of the true Christmas story, it would go like this. And it's up here on the screen. God's tenacious love for human beings never fails. Say that with me. God's tenacious love for humans never fails. God's love is a tenacious love. I mean, we talk about God's love a lot around here. But one of the things that we don't say often enough is just how tenacious that love is. It is a love that doesn't give up, even though it is given every reason to give up. God's love is tenacious. It just hangs on. It's steadfast. It's persistent through space and time. We say a lot that God's love is giving. It's self-giving. It's self-sacrificial. But one of the things that God's love is, is, is long-suffering. It's tenacious that way. It suffers through a lot of stuff for a long, long time. Now, when we think of the Christmas story, we typically think about those events, those really famous events that take place the time that Jesus himself was born in Bethlehem. It's the story of angels showing up and announcing his birth and scaring shepherds who are out in the fields caring for their flocks. It's about wise men coming from the east. It's a birth in a barn because there's no guest room available. It's about uh, swaddling a, a child and putting that child in a manger because there's no other place for him to have a crib. It's about a Roman census that takes place throughout the entire world. It's about a crazy star that just moves around, leading those wise men to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. But the truth of the matter is this. The truth of the matter is that the true Christmas story, the story that we celebrate, the story that we adore, was part of a really, really big, long plan. 
Think about this verse that typically we don't really think about in terms of Christmas or the birth of Jesus. Uh, when, we, when we're thinking about those birth narratives in, in, uh, in Matthew and in Luke. But in Galatians chapter 4, this is what Paul writes to the church, all those churches in the region of Galatia. He says, when the set time had fully come. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. What the when the set time had come means is that a time had been set for the mystery of the incarnation, the, the mystery of God the Son becoming flesh, becoming a human being. The time set had come for him to be born of a woman. And this big plan, this long line of history that leads us into the events surrounding the birth of Jesus and the, finally the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus as Lord of everything, all of that begins at the beginning. Ironically, it's with the very first words of the Bible. Those three first words of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning who? God, right? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earliest fact of history is that before there was a history, there was a God who was doing, who was working, who was making. He creates the heavens and the earth and everything in between. He creates all humans uh, or all living things, including the first human beings. And those first human beings are placed in the garden, the Garden of Eden, where they have everything that they need. They have everything that they need to thrive and to flourish and, and, and to, to grow more beautiful and more beautiful and stronger and stronger. They have everything need, they need plus one little commandment. God says to these first humans in the Garden of Eden that you are free to eat of any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You will certainly die. And you know the story. It's become our story. And that long human history can be defined in three, at least three phrases, right? The first one is this. We trust until we don't trust. We trust until we don't trust. Number two, we make good decisions until we make bad decisions. Good decisions until we make bad decisions. And then the final one is this, one step forward until we take two steps backwards. Now, there's probably a lot of ways that you can define human history, but from heaven's perspective, when God looks down upon the history of human beings, this is what he sees. Trust until there's distrust, good decisions until bad decisions, one step forward, then two steps backwards. And that's what happened. Genesis chapter 2, the creation of everything, heavens and earth, everything in between, everything is good, everything is great, everything is flourishing, everything is working. And then in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent shows up with a bag full of temptations. And he throws them out there in front of the humans, and the humans fall for it. That is, they don't trust God to have their best interests at heart. And all manner of bad things, including the worst thing, including death, enter the world. And not only that, humans are exiled from the garden. And the worst of all is their relationship with God is completely changed. Things are just not the same 
with God. In fact, human beings cannot even be in the presence of God and look upon God without being destroyed. But it's right here in the beginning. It's right here in Genesis chapter 3 that we get the first hint of the true Christmas story. Now, you know what happened? The first humans discover that um, they are naked and there is shame and they hide from God and there's this encounter with God and they confess that they'd eat. Well, I should say they confessed after, you know, Adam tried to blame Eve for everything. And they finally confess, yes, we ate of the fruit and God turns to the serpent. And he says, because you have done this, cursed are you, serpent, above all livestock and all wild animals. This is your future. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, that is hostility. I will put conflict. I will put the state of being enemies between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And then he goes on and kind of prescribes what it is, it's going to, or diagnosis, what the world is going to look like now that sin and death has entered into it. But in this, what the theologians call the Proto-Evangelium, the first teaching or preaching of the gospel, we find a hint of the, of the true Christmas story. And the hint is this, that there is one born of a woman who is coming to defeat you. There is one born of a woman who is not only coming to defeat you, but to utterly and completely destroy you. Now notice what it is that God does in the garden. He does not remove the consequences of the human lack of trust. Those consequences persist until today. But He doesn't kick them to the curb. But He does what all good fathers, what all perfect fathers do, when their children have been attacked and have been tricked and have been hurt. He deals with the children's enemy. Now from there, we could talk about a lot of individuals, but nine chapters later in Genesis, the end of Genesis chapter 11, the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, we run into this fellow by the name of Abram. His name is later changed to Abraham. And what we learn about this guy, the first time he's introduced to us, is that his life has come to a dead end. His life has come to a cul-de-sac. He's at a dead end. Now, one of the little known facts about him is that he is a descendant of Noah, who is a descendant of Seth, who was of the line of those humans who called upon the name of God with a big G. And now... He is, being this descendant of Noah and of Seth who call on the name of God, he is now living in a land among people who call upon the names of lots of gods with little g's. He's not not in a place of, of recognizing the one true God. He's in a polytheistic culture. And not only that, his his Abraham's life has kind of come to the end of the line. He's kind of come to the end of the line. There is no one who is going to follow him because of some fertility issues between he and his wife, Sarai. And here he is. Until one day, out of the blue, 
when nobody woke up optimistic that the day was going to be any different, the God who created the heavens and the earth shows up, He reveals Himself, and He says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I mean, this is a fellow who is thinking that, you know, everything good that is ever going to happen to him has already happened. When God shows up and says, I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And then this. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In other words, God is saying to this Abraham that something special is going to happen through Abraham that is going to bless all the world. And by all the world, he means not just the Hebrew world, but all of the peoples of all of the places, of all of the lands, of all of the nations around the world. And there comes a point where Abraham just steps forward. And, you know, it's Genesis chapter 15. We won't go into this. But Abraham is known today, especially among disciples of Jesus, as the father of the faith. It is that faith of Abraham that we are called to have in Christ Jesus. But there are times, if you read the story of Abraham, where it gets a little dicey. There are times in his story where Abraham has trouble trusting God. And there are times where God's love has got to be really tenacious and to hang in there with Abraham and the plan because Abraham is making some pretty awful decisions. He lies twice about his wife being his sister. No woman ever likes that. That's a bad decision. He tries to have a descendant because that's a really big deal to him. He tries to to have a descendant, a child, a son, through his housemaid. That's a bad decision. But the one constant as we read through all of those chapters in Genesis about Abraham's life is this, that God's tenacious love for human beings never fails. And again, we could talk about so many other characters in Genesis and Exodus, but let's go to 1 Samuel. Next in line of a lot of people that give us an interaction with God, that give us a hint of what God is doing in the world, is David, the poet, shepherd, king of Israel. He is the man after the heart of God. This is used only of him, and it's mentioned in the Old Testament, the New Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 13, Acts chapter 13. He is the man after the heart of God, but sometimes you have to question that. There is that time at the beginning of his life when he's introduced to us, as a person that loves, loves God and he's going to have faith in God and doesn't want to see God's name disdained by the Philistine giant. And so he defeats, as this young lad with a slingshot, the great Philistine mighty warrior, nine feet, six inches tall, a guy by the name of Goliath. That's one step forward. But you can't think about Goliath and David without going a little bit further down the line, and then there's that thing that happened with Bathsheba. It's a step backwards. And then he kind of compounds it by trying to hide it, which ends up 
leading to the death, the murder of Uriah, her husband. That's that second step backward. But once again, even in the life of David, there is a hint that God is up to something really, really big. Now, David has decided, because he lives in this great house, that he wants to build a house for God. Why should I live in this when you know, God is in this, this tabernacle? But the problem is, is that David is a man whose hands are covered in blood. And God comes to him one night and he says, You know what? I really appreciate what you're doing. You're not going to build the temple for me. And he says to David, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors... I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name with a capital N, and I, and here it is, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's saying that someone is coming from your line David, who will reign forever over a kingdom that will never end. And years later, I mean, this, this, is, this begins to be a way that, 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 that the people of God begin to think about the future. In some years, there is a prophet by the name of Isaiah, who during a really particularly dark time in the history of, of Israel, who mentions a child, and he's trying to encourage Israel to faith and to trust God, and to live righteously, and, and not falsely. And in the middle of trying to encourage Israel, he talks about a child from the line of David whose kingdom will be forever. And God says to the people through Isaiah, to us a child is born. It will involve a baby. To us... A son is given. It's going to involve a baby, a, a, a son. A son is going to be given, foreshadowing of something that John is going to tell us in this gospel, that God so loves the world that he gave his son. But God is, is not through. He says the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government, the greatness of his peace, there will be no what? There will be no end. To it. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And this child that Isaiah is talking about, it's sort of the front end of that book of prophecies, not only is born and not only becomes a man, but he also becomes what is known in Isaiah's writings as the special suffering servant of God. The son who is mighty counselor and prince of peace and mighty God and everlasting father is also the one who will suffer. Who will suffer 
who will suffer. And some chapters later, Isaiah will describe it. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Well, there are some more years in this long line of redemption history. But now we end up around the last couple of decades of the era we know as before Christ. We go to this little town, Nazareth. It's, it's not a place that anybody wants to go to. It's not on any of the tourist sites. Nobody writes up you know, something good about Nazareth. In fact, they ask the question, can anything good come from Nazareth? But it's this little burg of very, very religious, poor people that's just west of the Sea of Galilee. And it all boils down to this, 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 this line of history, of redemptive history, as C.S. Lewis says, it all comes, you know, the, the point of the spear is a young Jewish girl at her prayers. And this the young woman by the name of Mary, who's probably 13, 14 years old at the time, perhaps, sees this angel by the name of Gabriel. Gabriel is the angel who speaks the messages of God. He's already been to Zechariah showing up now in Nazareth. And he says to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him what? What's his name going to be, church? He will be great. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. There it is, the tie-in. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and ever. His kingdom will never, ever end. And you know how the story goes. In fact, over the next couple of Sundays, we're going to be talking about this birth and all of its meaning for us. But this morning, we just need to be reminded that Mary is faithful to God. And she trusts God. And she makes a great decision. May what you say happen. In whatever ways it affects me. And it's one step forward. But it's a big step. And Mary gives birth to a son. There's this, this, this Roman census of the entire world. It means that Joseph is going to have to go down to Bethlehem, but somewhere along the line, you know, Mary's going to give birth, and she doesn't want to be up there by herself, so she goes with Joseph to Bethlehem. But by the time they get there, because there's no Uber, there are no jets, there are no flights, there's just donkeys and sandals. 
And they make this long trip. And she gives birth to him in a barn. And they name him in Hebrew, Yeshua, or Jesus. As a man, he too has an encounter with Satan. It's in the wilderness. And Satan shows up in the wilderness at a time when Jesus is really, really hungry and is back full of temptations. He says, why did you make those stones bread? You know the story. But Jesus chooses in his confrontation with Satan to trust God. And at the end of his life, he's in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a different garden, but it's a garden. And there he's praying because it's on the eve of the cross. And he's beginning to see fully what this is going to mean, what what it's going to amount to for him. And he's praying in anguish about the cross. The, The sweat drops of blood are falling. But in the end, he makes a good decision, the greatest decision, the most beneficial decision for us and the kingdom of God. Not my will, but yours, God, be done. And every step of his life to that point and beyond was a step forward and a step toward that cross. In the cross, there is forgiveness and there is reconciliation. For every act of distrust you and I have ever done. There is forgiveness and reconciliation for every bad decision that we have ever made. There is forgiveness and reconciliation to God for every step backwards that we have taken. You see, friends, the the true Christmas story is about a son being born, and it is about Bethlehem, and it is about a crazy star, and shepherds, and sheep, and wise men, and frankincense, and myrrh, and gold, and that crazy star. But the true Christmas story is about the tenacious love of God for humans that never fails. That's where our hope comes from. That's why there is even the possibility of hope for us in this life. Knowing the kinds of people, the kinds of heart, the kinds of minds, kinds of decisions, the kinds of thoughts, the kinds of values, the kinds of emotions that we make and take and do in this life that are less than faithful at times. The reason there is hope has nothing to do with us. It is the grace of a tenacious love by our Creator, Father, Shepherd, Savior that never, ever, ever fails. And that is the big plan. That God is sovereign and loving and we can put our hand, our life in His hands in trust because we have seen what He has done with all of history. Let's stand and praise Him together.